Now, now it is no longer on mute. Uh, but yeah, we moved from space to space, renting from a church, and then uh, finding our uh, space in a community center on the lower level of the community center, and then we moved on up to the upper level of the community center, and so uh, that set up and tear down every week uh, has been a part of my life in ministry, and so again, I feel right at home here. And so I want to um, share with you uh, a message this morning from a from a passage, a text in Scripture that really has been very formative for me in thinking about uh, the ministry of the church and thinking about my own particular ministry passion. And it is uh, the 11th chapter of, of Genesis, verses 1 through 9, very familiar passage in the Scripture. If you spend any time in the, in the Bible, even if you haven't, you likely have heard about the Tower of Babel. And I want to speak to you this morning on this subject. You see it there in your bulletin. The title of the message is Get Out of the Ghetto. Get Out of the Ghetto. And here's the point of the entire message. It is this, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus's church must reject ghetto living and persevere in pursuing reconciliation. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' church must reject ghetto living and persevere in pursuing reconciliation. Listen to God's word here found in Genesis chapter 11. It reads this way. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name belongs the glory. Father, we submit ourselves this morning to you, to your word, and ask that you would do what only you can, that you would speak your truth through the mouth of your servant. You are the one who knows all things, and so you know what every heart in here stands in need of. 
And so be pleased this morning by the power of your spirit to meet us here and give us what we need. Lord, if we need encouragement, would you encourage our hearts in your gospel this morning? Lord, if we need to be corrected, would you in your mercy correct us? Lord, if we need faith this morning, would you be pleased to give us the gift of faith that we would be people who live for the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, I've become um, somewhat of a coffee snob over the past 18 years or so. In fact, I received what might be one of the most wonderful gifts that I've received uh, in my adult lifetime uh, on yesterday afternoon at LDR when uh, a brother came and he uh, gave to me after preaching at Covenant Seminary Chapel on Friday and finding out that I, my love for coffee, he came and he gave me a bag of coffee that he had just roasted yesterday. And so I am taking it right back with me to Washington, D.C., and we'll be brewing it tomorrow morning. And this all started when I started uh, taking seminary classes part-time. I'd need a little pick-me-up uh, after working a whole day and then having to go to, to class at night, 7 to 10 p.m. Uh, after a day of work. And I, I now prefer to make my coffee at home. But uh, for many years, Starbucks was the primary place uh, for me to feed my coffee addiction. And since I had given Starbucks so much of my money over the years, I was interested in the, hearing the story of Starbucks founder Howard Schultz years ago when he was interviewed on 60 Minutes back in 2006. He, uh, he was born and raised in my hometown of Brooklyn, New York, and uh, he, he grew up, however, under very different circumstances uh, than I did. He grew up actually in the projects in Brooklyn, New York, because his family was poor. His father was a delivery truck driver picking up and delivering cloth diapers, and his father fell on the job, got injured, broke his leg, and was subsequently fired with no workman's compensation at that time or disability package, his family spiraled down from a working class family to a family living in poverty. He said that he saw the fracturing of the American dream firsthand at seven years old. Howard Schultz grew up in the ghetto. You could see the emotion on his face in the interview as tears welled up in his eyes as CBS filmed him walking down that same hallway in that same apartment building uh, to apartment 7G where he lived as a boy. He says in that interview his dream was to get out. He said, I never allowed myself to dream beyond that. I was afraid to dream beyond that. His dream was to get out of the ghetto. He could think of nothing better than to be free of ghetto life. And it's easy for us to resonate with 
shows his dream if our sole picture of the ghetto is a rundown, densely populated urban area that's characterized by, by blight and crime and, and poverty. But I know here at Central West End Church, you all are sharp people. I know that you know that I'm setting you up. <laughs> know that you know that you're, I'm only going through all of this to, to set you up because, see, I, I also have a dream. And my dream is that the church of Jesus Christ would have a divine dissatisfaction for ghetto life. My dream is that Jesus' church would, would get out of the ghetto. And what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the, the ghetto in its more common use, but ghetto as defined as an environment where a group of people live or work in isolation, whether by choice or circumstance, groups or, or communities uh, living in isolation, getting their sense of worth and dignity from their identification with that community, and we have all kinds of ghettos in the church, racial ghettos and ethnic ghettos and academic ghettos and generational ghettos and socioeconomic ghettos, and the list could go on and on. And when I look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, what I see is ghetto life. That type of ghetto living is the result of God's judgment upon humanity at Babel. It's not a blight. It's a blight, rather. It's not a blessing. Our text is comprised of four scenes, and so I want to work through this message with uh, four C's. So we're going to talk about getting out of the ghetto, but these four C's are, are four points. Co coexistence. Construction, confusion, and community. Coexistence, construction, confusion, and community. And it says in these first two verses, it says, the whole earth had one language and spoke the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Practically everywhere... We look in our cities, in our society, we see bumper stickers and we see billboards, we see posts on social media calling out for, for peace and civility. In the county where I used to live, Howard County, Maryland, a few years ago, there were bumper stickers all over the place saying, choose civility in Howard County. You see bumper stickers calling for us to, to coexist, to seek peace and not war. Rodney King asked a question 20 years ago that has become iconic in this land when we see hostility. He asked the question simply, can't we all just get along? People are left frustrated that we're unable to come together as a human race and create this peaceful and civil coexistence. 
Well, there was a time in human history when everyone had the same language and spoke the same words. Humanity was in solidarity. The author Moses tells us here that everyone could speak and understand each other. They migrated together from the east and settled down in the land of Shinar. That's Mesopotamia. Everybody was getting along. So what is the problem with this picture? Before we hear the people speak themselves in verses 3, verses 1 and 2, let us know that, yes, everybody is on the same page, but they're on the same page in their rejection of God's command. They're on the same page in their rebellion against what God has explicitly commanded them to do. After the narrative of the flood in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, God once again commands humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. And yet, what do we find humanity doing? In direct and conscious opposition to God, they determine we don't want to fill the earth. We want to sit down and settle down right here. It's not as though they were ignorant of God's command. They couldn't claim. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. We don't find the devil here, the serpent in Genesis chapter 11, like we find in Genesis chapter 3, tempting humanity to disobey their creator. Man was one big, happy family against our God. In the book of Genesis, that term uh, eastward or, or from the east in verse 2, it actually marks a separation in the book of Genesis. It, it, it typically conveys the reality that the Babylites here, the people of Babel, are outside of God's blessing. We see this expressed in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 24, when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the, the flaming sword uh, at the east of the garden. In chapter 4, when Cain uh, killed his brother Abel, he went away from the presence of the Lord, and it says he settled in Nod, east of Eden. In Genesis chapter 13, when Lot separates from Abraham, he journeys eastward to settle in the land of Sodom. So in moving eastward and settling in Shinar, the big, happy human family is outside of God's blessing. You see, that's why bumper sticker theology is fruitless. Bumper sticker theology that, that calls for coexistence by itself isn't enough to do anything. Even if by some means we were able to achieve the corporate civility and peaceful coexistence by our own efforts, we would still be a corrupt people unified only by our sinful rebellion against God. And like verses 3 and 4 tell us, our solidarity would be expressed in trying to use God's gracious gifts to usurp his authority and make a name for ourselves. 
Look at what it says in verses 3 to 4. Humanity had one language, speaking the same language. And look at what they say to one another. They say to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here's their solidarity expressed in their construction project. There's no attempt to even fake obedience to God. There's, see, this is, this is the warp. This is the dysfunction. This is the disorder, this disorder that sin creates in the human heart. The sinful heart wants to find significance by our own achievements. The sinful heart wants to make a name for ourselves apart from God. The sinful human heart wants more than anything else to have all the glory and fame come to ourselves. Let's examine what they do in their futile efforts to establish significance and immortality by their own achievements. Their rallying call is to make brick and mortar in order to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, cities were not designed primarily to live in. They were intended primarily for religious and public purposes. And so there in Shinar, in Mesopotamia, they employed their technology to build this city whose central focus was this tower. This tower is known as what's called a ziggurat. The ziggurat is a massive and lofty, solid brick stair, staircase structure. In Mesopotamian culture, it was an inseparable part of the city. And sometimes that, that structure, which was a temple complex, was the entire city itself. Bruce Walke, in his commentary on this text, makes a good point. There's another, there's, another, uh, 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 there's another structure like this that's talked about in Genesis. Genesis chapter 28, what's typically known as Jacob's Ladder. You think about Jacob's Ladder, don't think about like a ladder you get and you can pull. That's not what it's describing. It's describing this same kind of ziggurat mountain, this structure with a temple, with a, with a, with a staircase-like structure that extended to the heavens. The difference in Genesis 28 is that that's God's ladder. It's God who builds that one. This one is built by human hands. And so Walkie says, like Jacob's staircase, the ziggurat mountain with its roots in the earth and its lofty top in the clouds served for them in their thought as a gate to heaven. This humanly created mountain gave humanity access to heaven and served as a convenient stairway for their gods to come down into their temple and into their city. What they are doing in this building project is they are contesting with God himself. 
And what the city reveals in this construction is the fact that the human spirit will stop short, uh, will not stop short of anything uh, if it, uh, other than usurping the very throne of God in heaven. Understand, this is still a mark of the cities that we build. At the heart of the city of humanity is love for self and hatred of God. I know that those are strong words, but they're no less true today than they were then in Babel, driven by excessive pride and arrogance. Humanity was united in a spiritual endeavor to find, through the use of their technology, meaning apart from God. Don't make any mistake about it. They were technological giants. God graciously gifted humanity with the ability to learn, to discover, and to make technological advances. It was no small feat to build the city and the tower. But what humanity did and what we still do is use our God-given gifts to rebel and to make a name for ourselves. One commentator put it this way, he said, Today, self-idolizing humanity is storming out of space, hoping to subdue even the heavenly bodies, and through genetic engineering has the potential to clone and shape humanity according to its own imagination. What had historically been the prerogative of God alone has now come under the dominion of depraved humanity. We still pervert God's good gift. We still want to make a name for ourselves. We still want to find significance and immortality by our own achievements apart from the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ working in us. The only glory that we will be thinking of is our own. So notice here in Genesis that the human word to construct in solidarity is now contrasted with God's word to deconstruct by confusion in verses 5 through 7. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the children of man had built, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The turning point in this passage is verse number five. Why are we told that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower? Was God somehow surprised by what was going on? Was he lacking in some knowledge about the the building project there in Shinar and needed to kind of get a closer look to see what's going on so that he can decide what he was going to do about it? No, you know the answer to those questions is no, right? The reason that we're told that God went down, that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower is to emphasize the futility of human efforts against God. 
You see, by human standards, the tower was, was massive and impressive. It was a work like none other. It was the result of all of humanity putting their minds together for a singular purpose. They thought that their technological breakthrough would enable them to transgress the heavenly realm where God dwelled. They thought that together as one, their strength and their intelligence would be unmatched Yet for all of their effort, for all of their building success, for all of their technological and intellectual know-how, their tower is so puny and impotent that God has got to come down to see it. They thought that they could transgress the heavens, but their best effort didn't even come close. We are still striving to obtain significance through technological advancement. We still continue to insist that if we could just find a cure for this disease or that disease, we'll be closer to heaven. If we can use technology to improve the quality of life so that people live longer and are more materially prosperous lives, we will prove that there's no longer any need or use for God. And all of that glory and fame will be ours. And that speaks to the futility of trying to make our own way apart from God. It speaks to the futility of pride and arrogance to think that we could possibly do anything worthy of God's recognition apart from him working in and through us for his glory and not our own. And so after the word from the humans to construct, we get the divine word to, to deconstruct. Let's go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. God comes down in judgment and effectively creates ghettos by confusing our language so that we can't understand one another. He comes down in judgment and he confuses their language so that they cannot understand one another. And even in this judgment, there is the mercy of God. Why? Because when the Lord says in verse 6, they are one people and they all share the same language, this is what they've begun to do now of all that they plan to do. Nothing will be impossible for them. He mercifully moves to, look, restrain our sin by confusing our language. He knows if I, if we, if I just let them keep going the way they're going... They are just going to keep spiraling into worse and worse and worse and worse rebellion against me. So even in the judgment, there is mercy. How much worse would it be in this world if God allowed us to continue to be united in our sinful purposes? The willful Rebellion of humanity against God's explicit command resulted in the use of all our faculties united for an impossible goal. We were joined together to establish ourselves as God with all authority and power. It was doomed to fall, to fail, because God really is. 
He really does exist. He's not a fable or a myth. He holds all power and all authority, and no creature can take it away from him. Listen, the world ain't as bad as it could be. I know it's jacked up. (laughs) Yes, it is. But it ain't as bad as it could be. If we all just got along right now, we'd still just be getting along and trying to overthrow God together. Therefore, in divine judgment and mercy, he creates ghettos. And so our last C community is about life in the ghetto. See, God's plan will not be thwarted. If his mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was going to be accomplished, God was going to have to do it himself in spite of us, not because of us. In judgment and mercy, he confused our language. They were trying to make a name for themselves, and the name that they end up earning is the name God gives them in verse 8, confusion. And now, because they can't understand each other, they had to stop building the tower. They had to spread out over, the, uh, over all of the earth. But notice what it says in, that pas- in the passage. It says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. This was the Lord's doing. They had to spread out all over all of the earth because of this confusion. But as a result of the confusion, listen, what happens is we no longer trust each other. We don't understand each other, and so we no longer trust each other. uh, And the spirit of Babel is still with us. We are still in solidarity against God, and yet this solidarity is expressed in our isolated communities. These ghettos, because they are in rebellion against God, are are naturally uh, uh, against each other. And so what happens far too often is that we understand our human dignity, our human worth, and our value as coming from our isolated community. And we love our ghettos, our ethnic ghettos, our cultural ghettos, our academic ghettos, our socioeconomic ghettos, and we love them to a fault. When we see difference, when we see ethnic difference, when we see cultural difference, we don't naturally embrace our dissimilarity. We immediately distrust. We instinctively reject and often mock because we're still confused and don't understand each other. Can I tell you something this morning? You and I have no idea how much our understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to live a good life, what it means to experience love, what it means to be a friend, a husband, a wife, a a worker, a father, a mother. We have no idea the, the depth to which our identity is shaped and informed by our ghetto. We are actually blind to all the facets of it because it's the water that we've swum in our whole lives. 
And when we see and experience something different, our first impulse is to react in judgment and critique of the difference. We've been living in ghettos ever since Babel, finding our sense of value and worth from our group. group. But whatever your group is, it is only a facet of the human experience. I love what, I'm going to get a little theologically geeky on you. This is the last point. I'm just letting you know. It's the last point. So I'm getting there. I got time. Amen. All right. Herman Bovink, Reformed Dutch theologian, uh, in his Reformed dogmatics, talks about the image of God, and he puts it so well when he says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. And I will add the image of God, because this is what we're talking about. What does it mean to live as the image of God in this world? The image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single race or ethnicity or culture, no matter how richly gifted that culture or ethnicity is. Bavink continues, he says, it is only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head, and that head he is talking about is Jesus Christ spread out over the whole earth uh, as a prophet proclaiming the truth of God, as priest dedicating itself to God, as ruler controlling the earth and the whole creation. Only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. Do you want to know what it means to really be the image of God? Then you have to see all of humanity together in all of its diversity under the lordship of Jesus Christ doing what God has commanded us to do to exercise dominion over the earth, to to dedicate ourselves to God, to glorify God together in all the richness of our diversity. He says that's what it is to be the fully finished image of God. It can't be seen just in your ethnic tribe. So how do we get out of the ghetto? What is the solution? It is nothing short of the blood of Jesus. It is, listen, it is in the Christian community the community of the redeemed, that we should see the dividing wall of hostility broken down in practice. The monoethnicity of most churches in America is a blight on the body of Christ, not a source of pride. We still, even in the body of Christ, too often love our ghettos in the church. But what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the reversal of Babel. 
In Acts chapter 2, what we find is that after Jesus ascends into heaven, just like he promised, he sends the Holy Spirit to this church. And what happened, the Bible says these people from what Luke calls every nation under heaven, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, they all heard the apostles speaking in their languages, telling the mighty works of God. In other words, in Christ, by the power of his Spirit, we can understand each other. That is what the Spirit does. That is his work. In Jesus Christ, we recognize our solidarity as those who have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters and made one people in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have more in common with those who are ethnically, economically, socially, and academically different than we are than we have with those who share these things apart with us apart from Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't remove diverse languages. He doesn't remove uh, diverse cultural experiences. But he allows people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus to hear and understand one another. With the Holy Spirit, we hear and understand. And without him, we misunderstand through fear and distrust and self-ambition. See, unity cannot be engineered. It's a matter of the Spirit. That is the vision. That drives me personally in ministry. As difficult as it still is to work out all of the cultural and ethnic differences, it is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who reversed the confusion that existed since Babel is still reversing the confusion. Today, he is still convicting us to die of our preferences and seek the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace across all all of these lines of ethnic and cultural difference because the reality is when we don't do that, we lose out. We lose out because we miss out on the beautiful aspect of the image of God that others bring to the table. Amen. And so what does this mean? Here it is. What does this mean on the ground in our day-to-day -day lives? It means a lot of things, but it le means at least this, at least this. We have to walk in humility. You have to walk in humility. You have to know that when even and particularly 
within the, the church, within the, as Christians, you have to know particularly when we're talking about and engaging issues that still divide us in this country, that you have to know that even your thoughts about those things are still informed by the ghetto that you grew up in. And you need to know that you need to be shaped and reshaped by other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ who come out of a different ghetto than you. It's necessary if we're going to learn to love well. It's necessary if we're going to learn to strive for the things that are, that are good and just and right together in our communities. The question for every local church, the question for every local church is how are we striving to get out of the ghetto? It can be at times uncomfortable, but it's close to God's heart. Jesus Christ is described in the fifth chapter of Revelation as being worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing because by his blood he ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And not only that, it says, and he made them a kingdom of priests to our God. God's plan will not be thwarted. The vision will come to pass, and it's not going to come to pass by the United Nations. But through the church of the living God, empowered by the Spirit of God, doing the work of God among the people of this world. May God give us, may he grant us faith and strength to persevere in pursuing this glorious vision. Let's pray.